Last week we had a cool week, but it is, uh, this is a kind of, it's not New Year's Day, this is kind of the first church service back in the swing of things, and here's the deal, it is time for you people to get your lives back on track, because I got it all together. <laughs> it's time for us to get our lives back on track. If you were here last week, um, some of you came up to me and emailed me during the week and you said, that was the most memorable service that I've ever been in at Mendham Hills Community Church. And if you were serving in children's ministry, if you were a volunteer up, upstairs last week, um, uh, that was stuck up there the whole time. Um, and after the curriculum ran out and the goldfish crackers ran out, you also emailed me and you said things that I can't really repeat, but you said that that is the longest service I have ever been at in the history of Mendham Hills Community Church. Um, it was a, an incredible, incredibly moving time uh, with real true stories of what God is doing in our church and in the lives of people that sit next to you in the pews. They were stories of our pain. They were stories of our victories. They were uh, stories of a God who rejoices with us and who mourns over us and even sometimes just plain old carries us through this life. And so here we go. First weekend, New Year, another revolution around the sun, and we... As we get it started, I, I usually like to take the first few weeks of the new year to talk about different promises, that we, different, different resolutions, different changes that we could make in our lives so that next year is not just like last year. Now, I'm not going to get into the stats on New Year's resolutions. I know we all know that we don't do a good job keeping them. Um, I know that they can be frustrating. Frankly, you know, uh, I went to the gym this week, and I, I am no longer a fan of New Year's resolutions because I couldn't find a locker or get on a machine anywhere. It was quite frustrating. But I still am a big believer in the fact that God calls us to stop on a regular basis and evaluate our lives. This is what the writers of the Bible, the, the inspired wisdom of God through them, they say in several places to set aside a time and a place to just stop and look and evaluate and see, one of the writers says, see if you're still in the faith. I would ask you to, to look at your life, pull yourself aside, take a moment, I know you're busy, but look at your life and say, am I, am I walking closely with God? Am I, am, I, is he, am I drawing nearer to God? Or am I drifting away? Now remember, here's, here's the truth, Okay. If you are not consciously making day-to-day -day decisions to connect with and walk with the living Jesus Christ, you are drifting away. Now, that's not because God does not want you. That is not because God is not chasing you. It is because that is the default mechanism in our brokenness. That is what we default to. We don't naturally have a bent to move towards God, the scripture teaches, nor do we in our broken bodies or broken worlds stay neutral. We don't stay to where we grew. We always regress. We're either moving towards him or away from him. And so God says, you know, every once in a while, you should stop and take a hard look and say, where am I in this thing, this thing called life, in this walk called faith? There's a couple reasons for that. I'm going to give you two, and then I'm going to, I'm going to share with you what I think that uh, some things that could help you this year in your walk. Here's the first reason that, that, that the scriptures say stop every once in a while and look at your life. It's because your life matters a lot. We looked at in September and October, we looked at Psalm 139 a lot. We, we studied some of the Wonder Life material. And Psalm 139, David, who is a broken guy, who, whose life has become a mess, 
even in his brokenness, he looks at God and he says, God, you have taught me that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. David understands that, you know, God, God didn't make me randomly. I'm the only me there's ever going to be. There's nobody else coming with my gift mix at this time. I was created with intent. You're not random. God has a purpose for you. I know that sounds like a religious thing. God has a big and bold purpose for your life. The truth is, you are not created randomly. You are here for a reason. This isn't a dress rehearsal. You get one shot at this. We have one shot at this together. And so to find this purpose that God has for your life and, and to do the work that the Bible teaches was prepared for you long before you were born, when we get that right, there's not riches or fame. What there is is peace and joy. More importantly, though, is when you get it right, when you understand that your life has meaning and intent and purpose and you live to do what you're created to do, your family, your home, your kids, your workplace, this church, our town, all of us become benefited by you finding it. Why? Because each of us, part of what we've been called to do is to be ministers of the good news of what God is doing through Jesus in the world. That's what part of our call is. All of us that would say we're followers of Jesus, that's part of the call. You're called, each and every one of you, right? It's not like there's a priestly class and there's a a class of people that go to church. The scripture says, no, once you've come to follow Jesus, you actually now become a, a minister of reconciliation. All of the hope that the world needs, all of the people that are out there that are struggling in pain and brokenness and despair, all that they need is contained in you. Your life matters a lot. Here's the second reason we have to examine ourselves. It's to see as my friend um, Gary Borchini, some of you know Gary, he's a long-term head elder here. He lives in North Carolina. We talk uh, uh, often, try to talk every other week, and he he mentors me. And Gary has a a term that he uses all the time, he uses the term taken out. And so Gary would say, you've got to examine your life. You've got to see if you've been taken out. If you've become a casualty in what the scripture would describe as a cosmic battle that you were born into. Anybody tasted the war? It doesn't taste real good. I mean, if, you've only, if it's only been limited, your experience of the battle has only been limited to what you see on TV, that's not wonderful, but it doesn't hurt that bad. But when the war comes home, it hurts. When my friend Brian Davis was here, he's a missionary in Africa. And if you go and serve God in Africa, you'll see some pretty wild things. And uh, Brian was sharing some of the wild things that he he had seen over there. And his quote was, I love how he put it. He says, I don't know if you have a place in your worldview for what I'm about to share with you. And he began to talk about the concept of what's going on in the spiritual world that's all around us that we don't see. Because you see, you were born into a war, not of your own choosing, but one that rages all around you. I don't know if your worldview has a place for this, but here's what the historical tenets of of our faith say, that you have an enemy, he's very real, he hopes to take you out, you were born into a battle, a life and death battle, and it's for... Well, it's for life, both here and and life eternal. Now, listen, church, anytime the church gets up and starts talking about enemies and battles, we give ourselves a bad name because uh, people on TV get picked up and they they have a misunderstanding about the battle. Our battle 
is not with people who look different than we do or believe different than we do or act different than we do. Our battle is not against those people. In fact, here's what I would tell you. Those folks that don't look like us, don't believe like us, and don't act like us, they're the prize for which we fight. We don't fight them. Don't get the enemy wrong. It's kind of a, a 101 thing, but I, I think our enemy actually trips us up, up in it. Here's what the Bible reflects from its opening pages to its closing words. That there really is a foot in the world and in the spiritual world which surrounds us, uh, one that we kind of faintly see now, but one day we'll see fully, a world where there is a war afoot for the heart and souls of men. You can see it played out everywhere in Scripture. I'll just give you a couple of verses. So maybe if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, I can just kind of point them out to you. Uh, Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, who is essentially going to be picking up the ministry in many ways, and in, in chapter 1 of his first letter to Timothy, he says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies that were made about you so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well. You see, there's a war going on. A lot of us, a lot of time, we're not aware of it. Paul would go on, he would say to the church in Ephesus, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. See, our, our battle is not against people that don't look like us or think like us or act like us or believe like us. Paul says that's not who our struggle is against. But it's against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I don't know if your worldview has room for this, but this is a tenant of our faith. As Christians, we believe that all that we see is not all that there is. I, I, the Lord has given me a picture, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but uh, lots of folks in our church, we have a pretty young congregation, right? And a lot of folks in our church are having babies a lot, and um, they'll post the pictures of the babies online, and it's, you know, it's these wonderful pictures of a beautiful baby like this. But in my mind, I see this picture of this baby being born into the world and this spiritual battle that's going on over this child. What will become of this little child? Will they grow to know God? Will they find their purpose in life? Will they become an agent of reconciliation, a minister of the Most High God? Will they be one that is light in a dark place, or will they get taken out? And the battle rages. If you've been at our church for any amount of time, well, you know we had a picture um, around the church for probably 30 years at least. It, it's made its way around the church. Um, it's kind of funny because its last stop prior to cons our construction was in the men's room. Um, and that's not really where you want your last stop to be as a picture, but uh, as I reflected on it, it kind of had some meaning, which was there was a father. Um, any of you guys remember this picture? There's a father in there on his knees, and he's praying. He's, got his, he's on his knees, and his son is in bed. He's got his hands on his son's bed, and he's praying over his son. And out the window, you see the spiritual forces, the spiritual battle that's going on over his son. Because the fight is real. I could go on. There's another place Paul says, put on the full armor of God. You see, your enemy is coming at you. You don't need offensive weapons. You do need offensive weapons. You also need defensive weapons. Somebody's coming for you. The scriptures go on. Um, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says he talks about the weapons of our warfare. It's not a joke. It's not something that just crazy religious people believe. This is what the Bible teaches. What is going on all around you, most of which you can't see, although all of us would acknowledge at some points we've tasted the war. Um, there's something big and powerful afoot. And that's why your life matters. Because you're supposed to be in the battle. So often, though, 
So often many of us, and, and people are counting on you in the battle. My wife is counting on me in the battle. My kids are counting on me in the battle. You guys are counting on me in this battle. And so often we just get taken out of the fight. My friend Gary, whenever he, he hears stories, uh, you know, we talk and he'll go, oh man, he got, oh, he got taken out. Now for most of us, when we get taken out of this battle that's afoot, for your soul and, and for the lives of so many people you love, it's not a dramatic defeat. We don't go down in a big fight. There's, there's no blaze of glory all around us. For many of us, it's not a giant sin or a besetting midlife crisis. For often, for most of us, for this battle, you know what we go down with? We go down with like a gentle sigh. Ugh. Or a kind of like a half-hearted remorse about the lives that could have been, the marriage that could have been, the family I, I, I could have led, the children I... I should, the way I, the way I should have raised them. The, the church, I, I, I could have been part of. The town, I, I could have impacted. But I got taken out. And what takes us out, you know, I'm going to share something with you, and maybe the imagery will stick with you. Do you know what takes us out more than any other thing? It's not our desire to steal. It's not our desire to get rich. It's not our desire to, for lust. Do you know what takes out most people when you live where we live? Your couch. Your couch. Let me, let me explain something to you. Or at least in my life. My couch, I'm like an orbiting body around a sun. And this thing has an amazing gravitational pull on me. I can't explain it really. But my kids will tell you, when I come in the door, it's very hard for me to go straight. I have this desire that just pulls me. Come, come. Grab a beer, come, put the Mets on, everything will be okay. Just come. And Monday turns into Tuesday, which turns into Friday. And yeah, I mean, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta work on a sermon, but man, I can get taken out by, not by big sins, but more slyly by fatigue or by busyness or, or by indifference. And so next week, I'm going to go over resolutions we should be making to God, things that we should be saying to God and, and trying to commit towards God. And the following week, I'm going to talk about promises that we should be keeping and making with each other. But today, I want to, call, I want to talk about resolutions we should be making to ourselves. Living a life that God called you to live with intent and purpose. Here's why. Because you're needed. Please understand this. You were created with purpose to fill a need. The battle rages. And the world needs you. Don't get taken out. That's an amen if you don't know. <laughs> By the way, small group leaders, wrestle with this stuff with your people. Okay? So here's promise number one. I'm going to do three promises, three weeks, three topics. Three, if you pick just one, just pick one from each week if you want. I mean, if you want to really be a type A, go for all nine. But hey. If you could pick one, I think you'd see some transformation in your life and we'd see some transformation in our church. Promise number one, and, and, and I know, I can hear, I can hear the, the minds clicking off already, okay? So I'm prepared, but stick with me. Who's going, will you stick with me through promise one, please? Because I know it's not going to sound all spiritual and haughty, okay? 
I could do that, but I wouldn't, this, wouldn't, this is a very basic promise. In fact, I will tell you, it is the same promise that most people made to themselves last week, and they're not in church today. And you know what that promise is? They're going to get in shape. Promise number one is you need to think about getting physically fit. Do you know why? Because you are in a battle. Because you're in a battle. If you want to be healthy, if you want to get back in the battle for your life, if you want to be an agent of the Most High God, you've got to manage your energy. I went to the doctor a couple years ago when I actually was a man in and around my 30s. And uh, I went to him and I, I walked in and I was probably in my late 30s. I said, he said, why are you here? I said, I'm so tired. And he goes, okay, why are you here? I said, no, that's it. I'm so tired. Like, I'm really tired. He goes, okay, what do you want? I'm like, I, I don't know, can you test me? There's got to be something wrong. He goes, no, you're 38. You're tired. And I'm like, well, is there anything you can give me for it? And he said, no. Like, and I left. Who's, anybody tired? Was, the other day, I came home from work, you know, it was 6.30 or whatever. I'm sitting on the couch. I literally walked in and see the gravitational pull. It's like a fish. And uh, I found myself on the couch and... Courtney was next to me. She had come home from work, and she was on the couch. And in between us was our dog, who's always on the couch. And, uh, and within five minutes of being home, I'm asleep. Courtney's sleeping on the dog. And my, do my youngest daughter comes up and takes a uh, picture of us and, of course, posts it as my background on my phone. And Lord knows I have no idea how to get it off my phone, so it'll be there forever if you want to see it. Out like a light, 6.30 at night. See, we have to figure out if we're going to engage in a fight. If you believe your life matters... You have to figure out, so you don't get taken out, how to create energy. Now, there are false ways to create energy, but the Bible lays out two ways for you to create energy because this is a serious issue. The first is this, rest. Rest is really important, and I don't think you understand. I don't think I understand. I'm going to tell you one that I'm good at, and I'm going to tell you one that I'm bad at, okay? Here's one that I'm terrible at. I'm terrible at Sabbath. The concept of pausing everything, just letting go of all of the stress, spending some time with God and just enjoying him and just being with him and just not, not thinking about all of the things I got to do, not worrying about everybody and what, what's good, just being with him and relaxing and enjoying myself. How many people are, anybody good at this? Because we don't value it at all in our culture. We value busy people. See, what I feel like sometimes is if I'm not busy, I, sometimes I feel like I'm a loser. Like, I shouldn't be doing, I should be busy right now because if I'm not busy, then I must not be that important. This is a lie. This is what takes us out. Do you understand that the concept of Sabbath and rest is so important that it's in the Big Ten? Okay, this was not something that Jesus said in a street preaching incident. It was something that Paul wrote to a church that was arguing it is right next to don't kill, don't, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, rest. Nobody takes it that serious. But God put it in the Ten Commandments and instead he says, you were created in my image and guess what I do? I rest. If you are not Sabbathing, this is me. I've got to get better at it. You can hold me accountable to it. If you are not Sabbathing, you are breaking the Ten Commandments. I know you might feel good. I know you might be saying, but I'm doing so much for God. There's so much need. I heard the story of a pastor this week. 
another person challenged him on the concept, pastors are bad at Sabbaths because Sundays are supposed to be the Sabbath day and it gets all whacked out because it's not a Sabbath day for us. And so they said to the pastor, you know, tell me about your Sabbath. He says, well, I don't believe in taking a day off because the devil doesn't take, take a day off. And the, the guy looked at him and said, so let me understand, the devil is your model. <laughs> so I need to get better at it. Um, I need to organize my life around it. I need to turn my phone off. I need to not answer texts. I need to not look at social media. I need to Sabbath. Here's the second thing, and it's just as important. It's a promise we make ourselves every New Year's Eve, but so few of us keep it. The second way to get energy for the call that the Lord has on your life in a broken world that so desperately needs children of God, you've got to get off the couch and get moving. I don't care what you do. This is not about building a six-pack. This is not about looking good. This is not about getting cut. It's about nothing like that. This is something, uh, I had some success in last year, and I'm going to tell you why. Because last year I got up and preached on it. We were looking with the elders yesterday about the things Jesus, sins Jesus talked most about in the Bible. They're not what you think. In fact, something sins that, that, that we hold up, Jesus never even really addressed. It doesn't mean they're not sin, but it wasn't high on his priority list. You know, you know what um, sin he talked about second most? The hypocrisy of religious leaders. And so I stood up here last year and I said, you people need to go and get some physically fit. And then I went home, you know, back to the couch, and I was sitting there. And I remember it was one night, it was kind of the third week in January, and I kept saying I was going to go to the gym. I was just waiting for all the New Year's resolutions people to wash out. And, uh, and so it was like the third week, and I'm sitting on the couch, and I remember I said to my wife, I said, I'm dying. I, you ever sit on the couch so long you, feel, you could feel yourself dying? I'm going, I'm dying. I can feel it shutting down. It's a mat, it's, it, you know, somebody flipped the switch, I'm going to die. Um, and so I started going back to, to, to the gym, and then I signed my wife up, and she started coming to the gym, and then my daughter, she signed up, and she started coming to the gym, and so I have to go to the gym because I, I'm too lazy to go in my basement, so I'm willing to pay the money for it. And so it becomes like, you know, listen, I count it as a date night, Joan doesn't, but, you know, it's... <laughs> It's, uh, you know, we go to the gym together. Courtney comes with us. We try to create some room in our life for it. Now, you might be looking at me and going, you're kidding, dude. You don't look any different. But I have to tell you, this made a massive change in my life, in my emotional life, not just my physical life, my emotional life, my spiritual life, where I was with God. It impacts everything. Do you know, God, when he created Adam, he put him in the garden, and you know what he told him to do? Work. Move. He could have said, Adam, here's a couch. Just watch. It'll all I'll take care of all of it. But he didn't. He said, Adam, here it is. It's yours. Now work it. Move. Do something. You weren't created to sit around. This is how you care for your body. How you do it is a spiritual issue. You might go, I can't believe I, should, I never go to church. It's the New Year's. I go to church. And this guy's talking about exercise. Um, but exercise is a spiritual issue at its deepest level. I'm going to tell you why. It matters to God. It matters to others. If you think that your body does not matter, you are actually falling prey to one of the biggest heresies that ever existed in the history of the world is to think that your body doesn't matter. I'm going to show you this. Paul addresses this heresy in the Bible. It, it was a way of thinking, and we still hold it today. It was held by a group called the Gnostics, very spiritual-sounding people. They would come into a town, and they would sound very, very spiritual. You would hear them and go, hmm, that sounds, that sounds deep. 
That sounds meaningful. And what they would teach is this. You are forgiven. You're saved by grace. Our faith is a spiritual faith. It doesn't matter what you do with your body because the body is just going to die and go on the ground anyway. So it doesn't matter what you do with it. Do whatever you want to do with it. And so then what would happen is they would take it to the next level. They would start to say, and since our body is part of the fallen nature, since it's kind of evil anyway, really we could do with it whatever we want to do with it. I mean, if we want to, if we want to have sex with anybody we want to have sex with, we'll have sex with anybody we want to have sex with. It doesn't matter. It's just the body. It's the body. My spirit's still good. In fact, there arose a, a, a saying around the town of Corinth. It's, Paul, Paul got wind of it. Around town, they would start to go because there was prostitutes in the temple. I mean, it was, it was becoming a mess. And so what they would do to assuage their guilt is they would say, oh, here, it's like this. Food for the body and the body for food, and God's going to destroy both of them. It's a spiritual issue, so don't worry about it. Now, you might go, oh, we don't believe that today. Really? Has anybody ever heard anybody say, oh, it's just sex? It's just sex. Not a spiritual issue. It's just a body thing. Here's what Paul said, because your body matters. And your body matters because we're in a war. And when you let it go, and when you lose your energy, and when the couch pulls you in, you get taken out in the battle, and everybody suffers. Here's what Paul says to this church in Corinth. He, He says, quoting them, I have the right to do anything but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Paul says, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. So now he tells them, I heard about your saying, you save food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Hear this now. The body matters, and if it matters, if you unite it with a prostitute, it also matters if you let it sit home and rot on a couch. It matters. It was meant for the Lord. It is a gift to you to steward. Do you know one day you will be held accountable for what you did with your body? It was a gift given to you to be engaged in the battle. He goes on, he says in verses 19 to 20, you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you've received from God. You're not your own. It's not okay to just do with your body whatever you want. You were, your body was bought at a price. So honor God with your body. Have you ever looked and thought to yourself, am I honoring God with the way I am taking care of this? How I treat it, what I do with it, because it's a spiritual issue. You were not created to wear it down. You were not created to let it go. Now this has been proven over and over again. The scriptures wrote about it thousands of years ago, but the studies just keep showing the benefits of getting off your couch. For example, exercise reduces stress. Exercise increases the endorphins in your brain, which create feelings of joy and happiness. What is everybody looking for? Go to the gym. You can find it there. It increases endorphins, which increase joy and happiness in your head. It is as, more, as, as or more effective than antidepressants. It improves self-confidence. It prevents cognitive decline. It alleviates anxiety. It helps control addictions. Can't stop drinking? Go for a run. It increases relaxation. It helps your brain tap into creativity. I don't know if you guys know who John Piper is. John Piper is kind of a big-time theologian guy, very serious guy, a guy that you would say, John Piper would never talk about exercise in church. 
This is what John Piper said. He summed it up this way. He said, I know that I'm prone to depression and discouragement. Do you know, as Christians, do you know what you're prone to? Not because you're a Christian, because you're a human being. You're prone to depression and discouragement. And he said, I've discovered that if I go to the gym three times a week and I hammer my body, I simply don't get depressed as often. He says, now I'm sure there's physiological reasons for that, but whatever those are, I know that they work. I know depression hurts my ministry, my marriage, and my parenting. Church, listen up, because there's a war at foot. So for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of kingdom purposes, I am off to the gym. It matters. Don't, don't think it doesn't matter. Don't think it's not spiritual. All right, I'm going to give you a second one. Second one is this. If you want to change this year, if you want 2018 to be a little bit different than 2016, here's the second promise I would ask you to consider making yourself. I will become mentally fit. Now, most kids in our communities, in these affluent communities where we live, by the age of three years old, where do, where do they find themselves most days? Some form of school. And then they get themselves into pre-K and K, and then grammar school, and then middle school, and then they, they go on to uh, high school, and then they get an undergraduate degree. A lot of folks in our wealthy communities go on and they get a, a, a postgraduate degree, and they walk up there, right? Doop, 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 doop. Thank you, sir. Get the old diploma. Smile for mom and dad for the picture. They walk down. Now, I remember in 1989, I remember thinking to myself, well, I got my diploma. What I've noticed about the millennial generation is that they walk down and they get the diploma and they go, I now know everything that I'll ever need to know. <laughs> Here's what happens to us, and, and, it, and it is part of our default mechanism. Our default mechanism is at a certain point in life. Remember when you, if you had a kid, they'll drive you crazy around the age of three. Because every time you do anything, they ask a certain question. Anybody, why? 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 Because at some point you realized you didn't know everything and you needed to learn a few things. I don't know when it happens, but sometime in, in the development, in the human development, somewhere in our brokenness, the switch flips and we go, I now know everything and I don't need to learn from anybody. It's a trap. It, it, it's the wiles of the evil one. Here's what the, the Bible says in, in the book of wisdom, Proverbs. It says this. If you stop learning, you will forget what you already know. This is exactly what I said. There is no neutrality in following Christ. You're either moving towards God or you're moving away from him. You're not in a holding pattern. You know, I discipled myself for a few years. I think I'm just going to sit here for a while. It doesn't work. Just like exercising your body, you might say, what does this have to do with being a Christian? Dude, I came to church and now you're talking about learning things and you're talking about exercise. Being a Christian... Following after Jesus means that you are committing to a, a lifelong learning process. Anybody know what the word disciple means? Learner. Here's what Jesus said. Pretty famous verse, but we don't really take it to heart. He said, take my yoke upon you, in Matthew he said this, and learn from me. As a Christian, you don't stop learning. As a leader, especially in the church, it's even more important that, that we continue to grow and expand and develop, and, and we learn new insights. <coughs> I, I've become convinced. I'm telling you, there are things five years ago that I was sure of that today I'm not that sure of anymore. Now, that might scare you, or you might go, that's pretty cool. He's still learning. He's still thinking. He's, he's still allowing God to, to do a work in him and change the way he thinks. Again, Proverbs 19.6. The one who gets wisdom loves life. 
The one who cherishes understanding will soon prosper. But the one I like the best is, is where we struggle. Proverbs 18, 15. What keeps us from thinking, from, from wanting to learn more? The intelligent man is always open to new ideas. In fact, he looks for them. When is the last time you looked for a differing opinion? Has anybody ever said, you know what, I'm really... Pick a, pick a topic. Pick a hot topic. Don't pick it now because I don't want to get into it. But pick a, hot, pick a hot topic. Have you ever said to yourself, I, you know, I really should see what the other side thinks about this topic. Um, so I actually could learn maybe and see what they're seeing and thinking. Um, at my house, my kids, what we used to do years ago when, when they were just starting to care about the news, right? Uh, you guys understand this, right? Like, if, if, you, if you are a person of a conservative nature and background, um, what news channel do you watch? Fox, right? And so you got Fox set on, you know, I have a, f a friend of my family at just 24-7, right? And then uh, if, you, if you are more of a progressive, if you're more, more left-leaning in your thought processes, there are other news channels. Probably MSNBC is, is maybe the most progressive news channel. And so you know what I used to do to my kids? I'd make them watch both of them. I'd say to them over and over, let's flip the channel and see what the other one's saying about this. And they'd go, why? You don't really believe that. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. You can learn from anybody. You can't close your mind down and think you have the, the corner on truth. You don't. I have breaking news for you. Your theology is not perfect. Your worldview is not perfect. And when we close our minds down to these things, when we think we know everything, we get taken out by the enemy. We become, we become no good. We kind of become like angry people over in the corner. Let me give you the, 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 the wisdom on this from Proverbs, uh, chapter 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Church, would you be open to being a learner again? I'm going to talk about next week how to be discipled by Jesus. I'm going to give you new opportunities for that. But you need to be open to the fact that you need to learn things. You're not done learning. Let me give you, Winston Churchill said this. I thought it was funny. I love to learn. I just hate to be taught. <laughs> Our egos get in the way. Let me ask you. Would you be open to opening your mind to the thought process that everything you believe is not exactly right and there are places where you need to be refined and changed? Would you be open? Here's what I can tell you. Unless you learn about how to love your husband or wife, your marriage is going to be in the same place next year. Well, it might be in a worse place next year, but it'll be in no better place. For example, I, my wife married me. She had all these hopes and dreams and plans, right? I married her, and I had all these hopes and dreams and plans. Who taught me how to love a woman? My dad. Do you know what my dad knows about loving a woman? Nothing. <laughs> and that's what he gave me. Hi, online dad. Um, <laughs> 25 years till I figured out. I literally, it was like, a, it was like a, a dawn for me. I'm like, I have no idea how to love a woman. Like it, nobody taught me. Would you be open, gentlemen, ladies, to say, I have no idea. We don't know what we're doing in this marriage. And that's why we're struggling. Parents. I remember Caleb was trying to go bow hunting, right? And Caleb, Caleb to, go, to go bow hunting, he had to go through all this stuff and take a clay, you know, and, and, and pass a test, right? Anybody can have a kid. Why do you think you know how to raise a kid? How do you think you know how to relate to a teenager? Would you be willing to get some counsel 
you know, read a book, open your mind to the fact that maybe I haven't been doing this right. Maybe there's a different way or a better way. How about with your finances? I know it becomes shameful sometimes. I ran up a lot of debt. I really want to see that, that, and I don't really, you know, I don't want anybody looking at my stuff. I'm telling you, man, that's foolishness. That's how you get taken out. You get loaded up with debt. You know, financial problems take people out of the walk all the time. I just offered some of you guys an opportunity to be with the, one of the best money guys I know, to, to be mentored by him. There should be a list of, of 50 guys waiting to get in there. So I just encourage you, open your mind to the concept that you haven't learned everything and pick something. Church, pick one thing, just one thing and say, this year I'm going to learn about this. Lastly, there's this. Lastly, there's this. I will become relationally fit. You and I were created, as we studied in the fall, as we studied in the fall in the image of God, to be a reflection to this world of who God is, what he does, how he, how he exists, what he looks like. And here's one thing we know about God. God, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, from eternity past to the, the closing of the age, God exists in perpetual knownness and closeness and intimacy and community and relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot, you cannot live this life, follow Jesus by yourself. It is a lie of the enemy and it will take you out. You cannot say, don't tell me you watch Joel Osteen at home so you don't need to go to church. It's not about going to church. It's about getting into community. You were created to be in community. You desperately need community. And if there's anything we've blown more in the last 100 years, and maybe in the last 10 specifically, than anything, much to our despair, it's community. The Lord looks at man in Genesis 2.18 and he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. I've told you this many times. It's the most fascinating thing in my mind. He wasn't alone. This was pre-fall of man. This was before Adam sinned and hid. This was God walking with Adam. And yet God looks and goes, you know what? I made him in such a way that he's, it's not good for him just to be with me. He needs to be with other people. Now, I could give you lots of scriptures on this. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one. Hebrews 10, let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. But I came across recently a, a, a talk um, by a guy that is running a, a Harvard study that is so fascinating because, again, it just backs up the word of God. So if, you, if you're going, okay, somebody wrote Ecclesiastes thousands of years ago, why would I listen to that? Listen, maybe, maybe you'd appreciate this. The caretaker of this study, he asked the general question. He said, what, what keeps people healthy and happy as they go through life? If you were talking to a young man and you were going to tell him how to invest in the future so he would be his best self later in life, happy, that he would have lived long, that he would have been healthy, what would you tell him is important? Now, interestingly enough, he spoke of a recent poll of millennials. Because we've done this, people my age, we've done this to our children that, that are that millennial generation, the kids that you and I raised. And they asked these kids, these young adults, what's the most important life goal you have? 80% of them responded. Their major life goal was to get rich. And 50% of the same adults said it was to become famous. Wealth and fame. Some things never change, right? But I think for the, for the millennial generation, because they've been steeped in 24-7 media, 
reality TV, social networks. It has taken this concept of the greatest thing, the most important thing, the way, the way I will prove myself, the way I will get any self-value is to get to a point where I'm either wealthy or famous. Because, see, we're in a war. And nobody ever said wealth and fame were, were to be the prize. But we get screwed up, and these kids, he, they've heard it from the time they were born. I did it to my kids. Guilty. Guilty. Get good grades. Go to a good school. Make sure you get a good job. And then you'll be happy. But that's not what this, this study seemed to point out. So the speaker, he asked questions he said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have a picture of people's entire lives from childhood to death? And you could actually look at a giant population of people and see them from the time they're children to the time they died and study them and figure out over 70, 80 years, what was it that generated for them joy and peace and happiness and contentment? Now, you can't find this information anywhere because nobody does a study that looks at the same people over 70 or 80 years for many reasons. You run out of money. The guy that's doing the study dies. There's hardly any of this information available. Most of what we know about human life, about how to live it, comes from people that are older, and they look back over their lives. And as we all know, we tend to look back over our lives with rose-colored glasses. That's not what they wanted to do. So this is fascinating. Harvard, 75 years ago, started a, a study called the Study of Adult Development. And they, they looked at individual human lives of the individual human lives of 724 men. They regularly asked them about work, home life, health, and they, they wanted to watch to see how it all turned out. And there's no other study like it. 60 of the original 724 guys are still alive. Most of them are in their 90s. They're now studying, this is fascinating, they're now studying the 2,000 children that came out of those men. I probably should have put that differently. Since this study, since this study started in 1938, they've tracked the lives of these men, and they came from two groups. The first group was a group of sophomores at Harvard University, privileged kids, intelligent kids, um, graduated, many of them went off to war. And then they looked at the second swath of kids that were in the 724. They chose them from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. They were chosen because of, of their troubled home lives, their disadvantaged families. Most of them lived in tenements without running water. And when they entered the study as young men, they all got interviewed, they got medical exams, they interviewed their parents, and they grew up, and they, and they tracked them over the years. Some became factory workers, other lawyers. Some were bricklayers, some were doctors. One of them actually turned out to be a U.S. president. That's how broad this study was. Some suffered from alcoholism, others from schizophrenia. Some made their way from the bottom of, of the ladder to the top. Others worked their way in the other direction. And what's interesting is they're still studying them. Every two years they call and they send them questions about their lives. My favorite line from the study was this. They said that they call all of these guys and all of the guys that, that were poor and grew up in inner city Boston, every time they call and they go, jeez, why are you still studying me? I am not that interesting. I haven't accomplished anything. And they said that the Harvard men never asked that question. To this day, 75 years later, they still are going to their homes. They're still reviewing their medical records. They're still drawing their blood. They're still scanning their brains. They're still meeting with their family doctors. And they're still um, videotaping their interactions with their spouses. How fascinating is this? 75 years of all of these hundreds of men. And so, after tens of thousands of pages on their lives, this Harvard study produced one clear lesson. 
And the lesson was this, that everything that they had hoped for when they were young men they, had nothing to do with attaining wealth or fame or working harder or getting ahead. The clearest message from the 75-year-old study is this. It's fascinating. Good relationships are the only thing that will keep you healthy and happy. Good relationships are the only thing that are going to keep you healthy and happy. In fact, he, he would break it down a little bit. He said, look, we, we found really three things related to that. The first is social connections are really good for us and that loneliness kills people. People more socially connected to family and friends and community are happier, physically healthier. They live longer than those less well connected. It showed that the experience of loneliness becomes toxic, that those less connected to others, those more isolated than they want to be, find themselves over life to be less happy. Their health declines in their middle ages, their brain function declines sooner, and they live shorter lives than those that are not lonely. 20% of Americans today would tell you they're lonely. Second lesson, it wasn't just the number of friends or if they were in a committed relationship, it was the quality of the relationship. Does anybody know how many friends their kids have on Facebook? It is not helping one bit. It's not the number of friends, it was the quality of the relationship. By the way, all of the studies are in, the more time you spend on social media, almost without doubt, the more depressed you will be. When they followed men into their 80s, they started saying, I wonder if we could predict when they were in their 40s and their 50s, what their lives would be like when they were 80. Like, could we look at somebody that was in their 40s? What, what could we figure out if they'd be happy and alive in their 80s? And when they checked into it, do you know the one discernible factor that said you'll still be alive when you're 80 and you'll still be in good health? It wasn't their cholesterol levels. It wasn't any of the things we would think. It was where were they in their relationships? Did they have deep, long relationships? Their third little lesson was this that good relationships don't just protect our bodies, but they protect our brains. Being in securely attached relationships, they protect your thinking patterns. In relationships, here's what it is. When relationships, people have relationships where they felt they could count on somebody, their memories stayed sharper longer, their relationships were not always smooth, they bickered, but as long as they felt that there was someone in their lives that they could count on when the going got tough, it didn't matter. They lived with health and joy. I, I, can I show you a picture of this? I, I was trying to, I couldn't find it. I was trying to figure out a way to, to push it into your minds and push it into my own mind. You know what we do with prisoners, right, when we want to punish them? What's the biggest punishment? We put them in. There's a, an author that did a um, study on men that go into solitary confinement, and he has pictures of them before they go into solitary and after they come out of solitary. Here's one. This is what's happening to us because we're too tired to go out with our friends. Hey, Joan, Jim and Sue called. They want to know if we want to go out. Usually it's Joan going, John, Jim and Sue called. They want to know if we want to go out. And I'm, oh, I'm so tired at the couch. Maybe I'll just go on Facebook and see how everybody's lives are. This is not what we're called to. I'm going to close with this. Let me ask the band to come up. If you really want, if you're looking to change your 2018, get off the couch and go do something. Commit to learning one thing so that you're, so something will change. And lastly, don't give up on relationships. Get into them. Do whatever you have to do. See, I see this in our church. I see it in every church. It's, it's kind of church people can't figure it out. People don't want to get in small groups anymore. 
Oh, I don't have time for a small group. It's too, too busy. Got too many things going on. Of course, you, I mean, you, you got taken out. I got taken out. Get into relationships. Here's why, church. Because there's a war afoot for you and your kids and this church and our town. Jesus summed it up when he said it this way. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, although sometimes it gets stuck on a couch. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. Three things. Get up. Get moving. Learn to Sabbath. Please don't think you know everything. Jesus says... Be a disciple. Come with me and learn. And finally, get yourself into a relationship. I know they're hard. I know sometimes you can get hurt. But the world needs Christians, real Christians, not just people that, that dub their name. They need, the world needs disciples of Jesus Christ because it's a mess out there. Frankly, it can be a mess in here. And we need each other. Let me ask you to, to stand and close with me in song.